just sitting there, the last second before I got up here to come and preach this sermon, it occurred to me that we might have somebody in the room who doesn't know what lumberjacking is. And so, just so you know, just in case there is anybody who doesn't know what lumberjacking is, lumberjacking is the cutting down or felling of trees uh, to make wood products, right? And so, we don't really use this term anymore. There is a, a really archaic uh, term called lumberjilling, believe it or not, and that's what women would do. They would lumberjack, but if they were Female lumberjacks call me lumberjills, and, and they're not really called that anymore. We don't really call guys lumberjacking. Maybe it's all part of the movement to recognize that women can do it just as well as men. I don't know. Um, but the bottom line is lumberjacking is cutting down trees um, and then you know moving them to the mill to be milled. Milling is not the same thing. You don't lumberjack and mill. Uh, generally, you are the lumberjack or the miller, one or the other. Um, so 
Just want to make sure that we all understood what that means. So you see the title up there. It's been a bit, uh, about two months, but today we're going back to the book of Deuteronomy. As you'll recall, we said the Lord sort of laid it in my heart and we set a, a goal of working through the entire book of Deuteronomy. And we will have to do some overview to see how it all connects together because I've been seeing some things like, oh, there was that we did, there was that we did, and it connects here. So we're going to have to do a little bit of that. But today we are going to finish chapter 20 of the book of Deuteronomy. Can I get an amen? Amen. Thank you. So this is chapter 20, beginning in verse 10. All right, now, before we go any further with this verse 10, remember that the first nine verses were about warfare, and I submit to you that these verses that we're about to read are also about warfare, so the whole topic all sort of works together under the topic of warfare. Obviously, as Christian uh, kingdom members and being part of the church, we don't go out to kill people or to conquer cities and make them Christian anymore. Uh, we don't do that. I say anymore because there was a time at which Christians did that, believe it or not, as horrible as that is. Um, we, we would never do that, and we understand that's contrary to Scripture. But there was a time when the Israelites were coming into the land that God had promised them, and they were conquering the land that God had promised them, and also conquering the land outside the land that God had conquered them or had promised them. Okay, and so these rules of warfare, both what we already looked at in the first half of the chapter, which I'm going to kind of just give you a teeny synopsis of, and what we're going to read right now, are kind of an overview of how they would handle warfare. That first part of the chapter, you'll remember this sermon as soon as I start talking about it. If you had the good fortune of being in here that day was talking about how when they would go out to warfare, when they would go out to do the work of the Lord to take over the lands that they were supposed to take over, that there were, if there were those amongst them who were trembling, or those amongst them who had major affairs in life to deal with or things like that, they were supposed to let them go. And the sermon was, you're dismissed. Right? And so if you have no desire to work for the Lord, if you have no desire to do what it is that God would have you to do, uh, pushing past barriers, overcoming financial restrictions, overcome relationship troubles, whatever like that, if you don't have a heart or a passion to follow the Lord and his commands, you're dismissed. That's essentially what the first half of the chapter was about. And the priests would literally go through the ranks and dismiss... Anybody who met those qualifications said, we're not going to have you go fight with us today because you're nervous or you're afraid or you're worried about your wife or you're worried about your lands or, you know, whatever. If you had any ties that would make them afraid or faint-hearted, it said in verse, um, let's see, in verse 8, who is the man that is afraid and faint-hearted? Let him depart and return to his house so that he might not ha make his brother's hearts melt like his heart. And so basically... After they did all of that and dismissed everybody that was supposed to be dismissed, they would get down to nine. It says, and it shall come about when the officers have finished speaking to the people, they shall appoint commanders of armies at the head of the people. And so at that point in time, once all the, the priests had done their work, the officers had done their work, and everybody had been dismissed that wasn't supposed to be in the fight, now we set up the commanders and now we go to war. Okay, and then that brings us to verse 10. Verse 10 says this, when you approach a city to fight against it, you shall offer it terms of peace. And it shall come about, if it agrees to make peace with you and opens to you, then it shall be that all the people who are found in it shall become your forced labor and shall serve you. However, if it does not make peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. To besiege it is basically sit around it in a circle, not let anybody in, not let anybody out, with the goal of eventually getting inside and defeating it, right? Verse 13 says, When the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall strike all the men in it with the edge of the sword. Only the women and the children and the animals and all that is in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as booty for yourself. And you shall use the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. So they're going to take all the good stuff, the stuff that could add to life, the stuff could benefit and like that. But they're going to eliminate all of the military capabilities. They're going to eliminate all the men and strike them down with the edge of the sword. Hold that thought, because you're thinking about, wait, this isn't the way I thought it was supposed to go in the promised land, but keep listening. It says in 15, Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not the cities of these nations nearby. So we'll stop there for one second, and then we'll come back. So in other words, this is the tactic in which they will handle all the cities that are far from the, the area that God has given them. Right? So they have an area, God said, you're going to control this, to here, to here, to here, to here. You're going to control this, right? It's going to be for your blessing. You're going to move in and you're going to take over the houses, the cities, the farmlands. It's all going to be yours, right? This set of directions, which we have just read, is not for that area. It's for the outlying areas. 
which tells you a couple things real quick. Okay, so if you're in complete control of the area in which you live, you're still going to have friction with stuff outside of it. Okay, so even though you might have complete control, completely established control in all the areas, and you could say of all the areas of your life or all the areas of your influence, if you want to do that, even though you might have that, there's still going to be stuff on the outer edges that could be a source of conflict. Okay, they would think maybe take some of your control or some of your lands or try to get you to rule your lands in a certain way. They might send you a message wanting tribute or they might send you uh, some people to come in and insti instigate false worship or things outside the land, the, the courts, the tents, the land, the barrier that God has promised you still can interfere. And so sometimes you're going to have to go to war with those things. And when you go to war with those things, what it says is you will have... You approach the city and offer terms of peace. And if the city gives terms of peace and says, okay, yes, then you go inside and you subjugate all the people of the city. And so we can bring that forward and apply it, and we will before we're through to spiritual warfare. But we're talking about the fact that outside the area that God has promised, there will still be areas of friction. And in those areas, war might need to be undertaken. And when they are, peace terms are first offered. And if they give peace terms, then they are subjugated to God's people, okay? So that's what we have here. And this is for those that are outside the area. Now on in 16, it says this. Only in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes. Ugh, that's kind of rough, but that's what they were told. 17, but you shall utterly destroy them. I'm going to pronounce these in the more newer vernacular, newer way, but it's the Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. I always pronounce those ite, but in the original language, they would be a T. So it would be like this. It would be the Hittite, right? The Perizzite and like that. But in modern vernacular, we pronounce them as I did, Jebusite. And the Lord your God has commanded you in order that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things, which they have done for their gods, so that you would sin against the Lord your God. So now we've got people that are inside the boundaries of the area that God has given us to control. And those people that are inside the boundaries, the cities, city-states, governing bodies that exist there, God has told us that's our area. We go in, there's no terms of peace. It's conquest and destruction. That's what it is. Everything that breathes. And the protection that that instills is that they would not then instigate inside the areas that God has given us false worship or to be lured to something else, right? Because if they instigate it and we accept it, these detestable things, then we would be found to sin against the Lord our God, all right? So there is a difference. Is there going to be false worship out there? Yes. Is there going to be evil and wicked behavior out there? Yes. And may you, at times, have to come into conflict with it? Yes. You might have to come. In fact, I'm going to suggest you probably will, right? Borders are sovereign by God, but the reality is there are people and things that are outside the area that God has given you to have influence over that are going to try to get in. And when they do, you're going to have to fight. And there is a way to handle that. But inside the area that God has given you to control, no mercy. No mercy. That's what they were told. Okay? So, we'll continue just a little further. Verse 19. When you besiege a city a long time to make war against it in order to capture it, you shall not destroy its trees by swinging an axe against them. For you may eat from them, and you shall not cut them down. We'll go a little further in a second. So we've got a situation where a city is besieged and there are trees around the city. The common warfare practice was to cut down all the trees. What is the purpose of cutting down the trees? Well, the main purpose was to construct siege engines, right? So you could use that to construct catapults or trebuchet if they had that. I don't know for sure that they did. Or to construct scaffolding to get up to the wall and get over the wall to get into the building. Or to uh, battering rams to batter down gates, um, digging implements to dig under the foundation of walls or what they call a screw to go through a, a wall, literally, and all that would be made out of the tree. You don't bring the trees with you. You're not going to carry thousands and thousands of pounds of lumber to the site of the siege, right? There's no reason to do that. There's trees all around. They would just go, okay, it's time to construct the siege equipment. Let's go cut it down. Now, here is a warning to them saying, in contrast to the normal way that warfare is done, 
there are trees amongst the trees around the area that you are besieging that you are not supposed to cut down. I'll read it again. When you besiege a city a long time to make war against it in order to capture it, you shall not destroy its trees by swinging an axe against them. For you may eat from them, and you shall not cut them down. For is the tree of the field a man that it should be besieged by you? In other words, he's saying, are these trees that are around the city that you're trying, are they your enemy? And the answer is no. Right? The trees are not your enemy. Only the trees which you know are not fruit trees you shall destroy and cut down. So they could use the wood to make the siege engines. In fact, it goes on to say that you may construct siege works against the city that is making war with you until it falls. But only the trees that don't produce fruit. There's interesting symbolism there. Right? So we besiege the city. We've got it wrapped up with our forces. We need to get in. We've got those various implements that I just talked about we could build. We need resources to do that. We don't use the trees that can produce good resources for us to build the siege works. We use the trees that cannot. So you say, well, what if there weren't any trees? It would be an extremely unlikely case. But what if there weren't any trees around that didn't produce fruit? Well, therein, then you would have to bring the resources from elsewhere to produce the siege works. Is a tree like a man that it would stand against you or that it would be besieged by you? No, a tree is a natural thing that, it, that exists in, in the ground to provide fruit to eat. Bless you. Provide fruit to eat. And you'll want that, right? Especially in a long siege because you're, if you're outside the area where God has given you the control and you're having this long siege, it's a lot of work to get food from home, right? Now, the trees may not be enough to sustain your army, but it's a long supply chain all the way back to home to get the resources that you need to be able to feed your army that's besieging the city. So the trees will help with that. They will mitigate part of the trouble, right? That being said, if it's inside God's area, what happens to the trees after you kill every living thing? What happens to the city after you kill every living thing in the city? Well, you get it all, right? Nothing. You get it all. So that's going to be your trees, so if you went against somebody to fight against them and cut down their fruit trees, that might break their heart. Somebody said, well, that breaks their morale. They're going to feel terrible because we're cutting down their vineyards or whatever, and, and they're never going to be able to rebuild vineyards that were there for hundreds of years. It's going to break their morale. Plus, we get a lot more wood we can do. We can have our cooking fires. And we can build siege works and everything. But when all of it's said and done, you're not cutting down their trees. You're cutting down your trees. Okay? So he's saying... Whether you're far away or at home, don't cut down the trees. Okay, And the trees are those things that can produce good things. They may not be producing anything good right now, but they can produce good. They can be a resource for you, and they're eventually yours if they're in the area that God is giving you control. Okay, so we've read the text, and we've talked about it in the sense of warfare armies going out. I submit to you that this text that we're looking at today has both military applications and also kingdom applications. All right? So first of all, I want to talk to you, kind of give you a definition. All right? What we're talking about is the area that God has given you to reign over or to control. Okay? And in the Bible, it's often referred to as your courts or maybe your tents. All right? It's the part that God has put under your auspices. This is what God says. I want you to be a good, I've given you this. I want you to be a good steward of this. Right here, this. Now, when God first gives it to you, it happens sometimes you don't have control of it. You're like, whoa, wait a minute. Now, I'm, I'm supposed to handle this. And this is a thing that's like, it's like a wild buck and bronc and I can't control it at all. It could be your temper. It could be a relationship with another individual. It could be your sex drive. It could be your tendency to watch things online. Or it could be all kinds of things. And God says, no, that's in your tents. That's in your courts. You're going to control that. I'm going to give it to you. Come follow me and I will set you free. Read, I will make you in charge of that which I have made you steward over. Okay. So when the Bible talks about courts or tents... It's talking about those things that God has given under your control. Now, that's because they lived in kind of like a nomad society, and they would pick up their tents, and they'd move somewhere else, and they'd graze their sheep there and set all their tents down. And they'd pick them up again, and they'd move somewhere else, and they'd graze all their sheep there, and they'd set it down. 
But the people of Israel are becoming no, no longer a nomad society. If a nomad society settles somewhere, then whatever might interfere with them there, they just pick up and move somewhere else. Right? If they're having trouble getting water, the well dried up. If they're, if they're getting raided by enemies, they just pick up and move somewhere else. But God is saying to us, that's not kingdom. That's not what he was doing with them. And to some degree, you can say very realistically, that's not what he's doing with us today. God is saying, no, in me, in my strength, in Christ, we understand if you're a Christian, in Christ, there's going to be that which I'm placing under you and your responsibility. And you're to steward it well. You're to represent me and on my behalf. Remember going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were created in his image. It doesn't mean they looked like him. It means they were to represent him. So whatever God is putting under your control, he expects you to represent him in that. And God is a ruler and a creator, and so you are meant to be an under-ruler and an under-creator. And the Bible says that you are, we are being raised as a group of priests, a priesthood, a royal priesthood for God. There's a great verse uh, which took off like crazy about 20 years ago in 1 Chronicles chapter 4. It's, it's called the prayer of Jabez. Now, Jabez was an honorable man. You can go read this if you want. It's in verse 9 to 11, but I'm not going to go there and read it right this second but in the interest of time, but I'm going to summarize it for you. It says in verses 9 to 11 that he was born and was an honorable man, which means he was trying to do what was right. And he prayed and said, Lord, enlarge my tents, enlarge my borders, that I might have more to be of influence over for you. And God answered his prayer and did that. Okay? Now he was living in a, in a society where he was pretty well settled too because he was part of uh, Israel and, and Chronicles is after they've settled in the land. right? So we see that God now looks at our tents or our courts as that area of influence and we can ask God to increase our area of influence. But I submit to you that if you're ruining what God has already given you, he's not real likely to expand your borders so you can ruin some more. Right? He wants you to deal with what's inside. So we've got two types of warfare going on. There's that type of warfare where you're dealing with what's inside the courts and the tents, that which God has placed under your auspices. And then there's that the kind of area outside. I also submit to you that people get so wrapped up in dealing with that area that's outside that they forget to deal with the area that's inside, the stuff that they're supposed to deal with. And, by the way, in business today, the successful mark of a businessman is if their business is growing. Now, it could be a complete mess, right? They might be bad to their employees, not paying enough, benefits aren't enough, turnover could be 82%. Like, everybody's quitting every year, right? But if they're adding stores or adding property or making the business bigger, then when the annual report comes out, they're all going to go, oh, this is the greatest CEO in the world. Even though he's torturing his employees, we don't, we don't see that in here because he produces that piece of paper, right? So he's not going to list that. Even though everybody's quitting and coming back again, so growth becomes everything. And I submit to you that in the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, we can be the same way. As long as I'm getting more results out there on the fringe of what I'm supposed to be dealing with, it's okay. This is how we justify things like throwing a tantrum. right? We, we justify throwing a tantrum because when we do that, the things out here fall in line. They get cowed or they shut up or they do what we want them to do and so on. But where are the auspices? Where are the tents? Where are the courts? They're in here at their core, at least, right? At least God wants you to be steward of your own heart under him, of course, right? At least he wants you to control your own actions. So this is what people are doing. They're worried so much about what's out there that they don't deal with what's in here, right? What's close to home. But the prayer of Jabez first says in, in uh 1 Chronicles 4 first says that he was an honorable man. And then he prayed his prayer to expand his courts and his tents. And God did. When you're expanding your courts or your tents or when it's, you're playing with the edges out there, you're dealing with people that are on the fringe or far away from that area that you've really been given control of, God says that you besiege them, those things, you lay siege, so you, you set yourself up against them and you don't stop. In fact, he says when there, he didn't say if, but he says when there is a long siege, he says don't kill the good trees because you're going to need to eat of them, right? You're going to eat off the produce of the land and, and it's going to help you have supplies. 
So in other words, there is going to be a long siege. You're going to go against something that's outside your area over a long period of time. An example of this is when there's an individual in your life. And by the way, your tents, your courts, will never include controlling somebody else. So you can greatly understand that a fruit tree, somebody who can produce, somebody who can produce great things in your life, a fruit tree could be a person. And a person can produce great things, but what if they're not producing great things? So I look at the fruit tree and it's off season and there's no cherries. So do I cut it down? No, right? Because the fruit tree could produce great things. And so we understand that as we move into that area and we try to deal with the evil or the sin or the wickedness that's coming into our lives and that person might be originating it. They might be causing it. But as we go in there and we try to deal with it, we look at that person and we say, well, I'm not going to cut down that fruit tree. So you don't cut down people. And Ephesians 6 says what? Our battle is not with flesh and blood. Listen, whoever that person is who's most difficult in your life, they're really causing you trouble. They're messing with your relationship. They're messing with your head. They break your heart, whatever. If you just kill them, they'll stop doing it. Okay? Now, the after effect of that will be horrible. Your soul will be a mess. Your heart will be dark. Your mind will be frayed at best. You may be nuts. You may go to jail for 25 years. You may go to jail for life. Right? Your life will be completely destroyed in the process of doing that. But you could just do that, and that would end them causing trouble, but also would end them producing any good fruit. Right? And that, of course, just to be clear, they might get saved later and begin producing good fruit. And so you would be doing exactly what God is telling you not to do by cutting down a tree that will ultimately bear good fruit, and you can't do that. So you can't attack people. But let's say there's somebody in your life and they're bringing a lot of wickedness, bringing a lot of evil. What does the Bible say then? They're outside. They're not, it's not you. It's not the things that you have immediate control over. So they're outside and they've come in and maybe they get a big invite into the courts. It could be your wife. It could be your child. It could be somebody that you really trusted, right? And so they've got a big invite into your courts. And so you feel like they're, they're impacting a lot of things, Right? but they don't have the heart that you need or they don't, they don't have the direction of God. Maybe they're not saved, right? That's why the Bible warns us about marrying, permanently wedding somebody who's unequally yoked, who's not submitting to the Lord the way we are. Because if you do that, you now have invited them into your courts. It's like moving a Hittite into your capital city and letting them be free and roam and do whatever they want, right? You're opening the door for them to lead you in the wrong direction. But Start with, on, they're on the outside edge, and we have not invited them in, but they're causing us all kinds of trouble. What do we do? Well, we go to them. You go to them, and you offer terms of peace. What are we talking about? Well, we start with the gospel. Let's start, you can't have peace with me unless you have peace with God. Right? That's the first step. So you tell them about Jesus, and they say, I hear what you're saying, but I don't want to hear it. I don't want to become a Christian. All right? I don't want to know about God. I don't want to follow the Lord the way the Bible says to do so. I don't even want to know what the Bible says because then I'll feel all icky inside because I'm not doing what the Bible says, right? So what do you do? Well, you can't just kill them. That's not allowed, right? So what do you do? You can't just cut them off and never talk to them again, right? Because they're a tree that could ultimately bear fruit, right? Now, if they came against you, they're persecuting you physically or attacking you or psychologically battering you or something, then you could cut them off because they're not a tree that's going to produce fruit they're a wicked thing that's hurting you, actively hurting you. Cut them off as long as you have to. Opportunity presents itself to share the gospel again. You continue to do that over time. You continue to tell them about Jesus over time. Ultimately, the hope is that they will make peace. When they make peace, what happens? They turn their life over to Jesus Christ. Now, not becoming my servant. Now, they could do that if they choose to, right? In fact, they'd be wise to because the greatest amongst us shall be your servant. But the bottom line is they turn their life over to Jesus and they, they're subjugated. They become a subject of the king, right? They become a follower of Jesus. That's our goal. So we go on the outside of our auspices where we're not given to control and we're striking out. But what happens if they don't listen? Well, then we besiege the city. I'm here. Here's the thing. I get it. You don't want to hear about it. I had a friend of mine. He said to me, he said, I don't, I understand what you're talking about, Jesus. I've heard a little something like that before, but don't believe it. Please don't mention it to me again. Those were his exact words. Please don't mention it to me again. 
About two and a half years later, I wrote him a letter. It began like this. I would like to explain some very important things to you. I want you to understand that I'm writing this letter because you told me, please don't mention it to me again, quote unquote. And then I went on to explain the gospel. He read the letter and did not respond, never said a word. A couple years later, he and I were potentially going to enter into a business prospect where he was going to bring some money to the table. And he said, I, I feel like it's the right thing to do. And I said, I can't take your money. In fact, I can't go to business with you. We can't work together in business. So because if you give this money, you will always think like you did it. You'll always think if we're successful in whatever we're trying to do here, you'll always think like you did it. And I can't have you be responsible for my success. God is responsible for my success. So I said, you want to give the money, but I can't take it. So now I could take it if you could say to me that God is the one who authored this, that God is the one who told you to give it. You know what he said? He said, well, funny thing you should say, I was driving in my car. This is the guy who said to me, don't ever talk to me about Jesus. And then I wrote him a letter and said, I'm, I'm writing you this letter because I, I promised you I would never mention it again. Now, fast forward two and a half more years, and this is what he said to me. I was driving in my car, and I was praying. Now, when he first, first talked about Jesus, he was an atheist. Then sometime later, he became an agnostic. An agnostic is a person who's not sure if there's a God or not, doesn't think we can know if there's a God or not, right? And now he says, I was driving in my car, and I was praying, and I felt specifically as if God told me to come to you and make this offer. And I said, now we have something to talk about. And I proceeded to share the gospel with him again. And guess what he said? He said, thank you. I agree. What you are saying to me now is true. See the difference? I besieged my friend for Christ. And ultimately, my friend, who was an atheist and later an agnostic, became a Christian. Now, he's a Josephus Christian at best. He's the kind of guy that like isn't outwardly living for the Lord, wouldn't share the gospel, and doesn't go to church. But if you ask him, he'll tell you he's a Christian. All right? So he's got way, a way to go. I'm still besieging him to this day, hoping that one day he will subjugate himself fully to Christ. I don't know if he's saved or not, but he'll tell you that he is. What I'm getting at is, if you're dealing with someone or something that is on the outskirts, that's how you handle it. You go and you offer terms of peace. In fact, 1 John 4, where it says, test the spirits, is a perfect example of this. You've got to look at everything and decide whether it accepts that Jesus came in the flesh, in the flesh, died on the cross, and rose again. And if it doesn't, it is an enemy. It is of the Antichrist. Right? So if I go to the fringe of my courts, I go to the out, I'm, I'm busting out of my comfort zone, and I say I, I run into something there that is clearly not of God. I say to you, will you come in line with what the Bible says? Will you come in line with what Christ says? And they say, No, I won't. I will not. I'm not talking about a person, I'm talking about a spirit or a thing, or an idea, something that's pressing, right? Could be CNN teaching something, could be you encountered it online, whatever, and it won't change. It will not come in line. The Bible says it's an enemy. You kill it. Not them, not a person I'm talking about. You besiege a person, you save them, spare them in the hopes that they will one day produce fruit. But an idea... Right? You kill it. You've got not, this does not work in my head. I will not allow it in my head. And I, I'll, I'll tell you that when we were going through a lot of racial stuff, and I know I can get in trouble talking about racial stuff in general, but I was trying to figure out what my position was because I hate racism, any form of it. I, I despise it. I believe it's an antichrist teaching. Right? But I also understand that most people who set out to stop racism actually become racist. The whole time saying they're not. whole time saying how much they despise racism, they become racist. Attacking whatever race they think is on the top in whatever area, right? And it's not just African-American or dark, you know, brown-skinned or darker brown-skinned people versus white-skinned people, right? And I'm going to explain that in a second. But it's not just like that. There's racism all over the world, right? People, most, uh, most of the time that you see Christian persecution, it is along race lines. It's people that Christianity spread largely in a cultural group, and they'll say, well, you're different than us, and they go kill them. Genocide. It's happened twice in my lifetime where they wiped out millions of people because they were supposedly Christian. Not here in the U.S., praise God, but it has happened in foreign countries. Like I know a woman who fled from it who now runs a restaurant in Toledo. It's a friend of mine, and she fled genocide in her own country where they were killing Christians, but it was a cultural thing, and it followed cultural, like a big family line, if you will, and they were killing them all because they were different 
and they were Christian, right? So I'm anti-racism, and I hate it, so I'm trying to figure out what is my position. Guess what I discovered? I discovered that there is only one race. There's only one race. You can't even find in the Bible anything about any other race. There's not two races. There's not 50 races. There's not 1,000 races. There's one race. It's the human race. And so when someone sets out to fight against racism and they start to say, well, there's, there's black humans. That's a different race from a white human. Or there's Hispanic humans. is a different race from a white human. It's all a lie. It's all a lie. It's people trying to motivate other people to stand up for what they believe in. So I had to figure out what do I believe about it. And what I discovered is there's only one race. I'm not going to deal with that. I'm not going to let you come in and tell me that I should treat one person differently than another person because there's only one race. That's what the Bible says. There are cultural differences. There are, you know what color we are, by the way? I want you to look around the room right now and see if you see anybody who's white. There's nobody white. White is not a color of a person, right? We're all brown, shades of brown. That's what we are, all of us. From tan, the lightest color of tan, to the darkest color of brown, we're all brown. One race. So I had to wrestle with that concept that was being pressed into my courts. What am I going to do about it in the part of my life that I am in, in control of? What am I, how am I going to respond? And so I had to besiege the idea until I could figure out, and then I subjugated it to Jesus Christ. And then I defeated its ability to come against me militaristically, because I came up with an argument that kills its ability to do war. That's what you have to do. But inside your auspices, <clears throat> inside your tents, in the area that you are in control of, there's a different warfare that we are supposed to be engaging in. It is a warfare of no mercy. You discover some part of yourself, some thing that you're doing, some idea that you bought into, something that seems to trick you Every time it comes around and you apply no mercy, you besiege it, you trap it so it cannot spread and affect other things in your life. And then you use the landscape around. So you say, for example, an example of this might be I have an idea that I know affects me every time it comes up. I besiege it. I lock it in. There it is. I see what it is. I'm not going to let it affect anything else. And then I'm going to build siege works against it. How am I going to do that? I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to pray. I'm going to worship God. I'm going to fellowship with other believers. I'm going to use all the spiritual disciplines, all the things of the landscape, and I'm going to build siege works against it until finally, as the Bible says, I can break that idea down. No mercy. It will be destroyed. I will kill it, and I will kill every part of it. I will not go, well, you know, 99% of this is bad, and I'm going to try to root out that 1% of it that was good thinking or that had some... No, it was turning me from God. It was affecting me against God. I'm going to besiege it. I'm going to use everything in the landscape to attack it until it is destroyed. Destroyed. Not just its military capability, but it's a, it's a, I'm going to erase it, eradicate it from the land. That is our job as Christians. So whatever your flaws, whatever your failings, whatever you're doing that you wish you weren't doing, whatever you're not doing that you wish you were doing, you've got to figure out what it is, and then you're going to besiege it. You're going to surround it with grace and mercy and strength, and then you're never going to stop until it is eradicated. Because as long as it exists in you, as long as it is, in, is there, it will always rear back its ugly head to lead you <clears throat> away from God. You cannot allow it to remain. This whole idea of, well, I do this, and it only comes up a few, a few times a year. Bless you again. A few times a year, right? No. You must besiege it and destroy it. Use the things of the landscape. Now, in so doing, understand that outside of that thing, right? Outside of it, there are things that are a benefit. So let's say you have reasoned incorrectly outside God's ideas, but in your own ideas, you have reasoned that in a certain situation, there is a certain behavior that you should engage in, and then God brings it to your attention that that's wrong. So you besiege it. You say, well, I, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that never happens again. I'm going to use all my spiritual disciplines, and I'm going to conquer it. I'm going to destroy it, right? Now, remember, you got there by reason. You reasoned in the first place that it was a logical thing to do that thing, even though it was not. You made a mistake, right? 
So this is what people do. They throw out reason. I'll never make another mistake like that, so I'm done with reason. When I was a young Christian, I remember questioning whether or not Jesus Christ died on the cross. I remember thinking that there could have been some foreign substance that we're unaware of or something that they gave him a drug and that he went to sleep and that they then took him off the cross and they switched out the body and the whole thing was a complete ruse. And I know that the Bible clearly explains to me that that cannot be possible. Right? We know that the historical text gives all the evidences. There's no way. The Roman soldier ran a spear into his side and pierced his, probably his lung and his heart. He died. If he wasn't dead, he died. Okay? They were assured that he died because if they weren't sure he died, then they could have been put to death. Right? It was publicly done in front of hundreds, possibly thousands of people. So there, there's plenty there. But I had that doubt, and here's what I did. I said, I'm just not going to ask that question. I'm not going to ask that question because I'm afraid. I want to believe in Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. So I'm just not going to ask that question. And I sort of put it on a little pedestal of a thing that I'll never deal with in my life. Now, sometime later, year and a half, two years later, year and a half, two years later as a Christian, I had a whole bunch of those little pedestals. I started with that one maybe, or maybe there was one even before that. And I had about seven or ten or fifteen of those things. And they were starting to affect me internally. And I went to Bible college, and when I went to Bible college, I took what's called an apologetics course. And they looked at those kinds of questions, and they found out what the Bible says about it. And one by one, that course knocked those things off the pedestals. So, if I had said with new things after that, when I encounter something that I didn't understand, I'm going to put it over there, and I'm just not going to deal with it. I'd have been doing the same thing that I did before, Right? So I learned that by my reason, by my logic, by my understanding, by my willingness to learn, I can handle those doubts that I might have. So if you're a Christian and you're in this room and you struggle with doubt sometimes and your way of dealing with doubt is just to put it out of your head, you are wrong. That is wrong. Because you're pretending as if God is not big enough to destroy that thing that's coming against you, and he is. You see? There are useful tools in the landscape around this, this thing that you need to defeat that you can't destroy because they're your tools. Your reason is your tool. Your imagination, that's your tool. It's creative ability. But I know people have been Christians for 20, 30, 40 years, and they're doing everything they can to beat up their imagination, everything they can to downplay their normal human traits, because those are weaknesses and they'll stop them from being what God... No, that's not true. All that God made you, assuming it's not sin, all that God made you is useful to God. Your quirkiness, your odd questions, your funny way of talking, your habits, whatever they are. Now, if you realize that your habits are a thing that is not in line with God, then you surround them, besiege them, use the things of the landscape to kill them off until you become wholly and completely subject to Christ. And if they're on the fringe, it's not even something that's inside your control, a, a family member that you're having a problem with, then you handle them differently. You go gently, asking for terms of peace. No terms of peace? Okay. Then you besiege them, hoping that one day they will be subjugated, Right? And you don't kill the person or cut the person completely out of your life because when they become fruitful, they will be of advantage to you. You see the difference? That brings us then to the conclusion. This tactic, this set of warfares, if you will, that God is declaring for us applies to every spiritual warfare that there ever will be. We have inside enemies to which we are to show no mercy use the terrain to fight against them, but spare the good resources of the terrain. Don't burn it down for crying out loud, because when you burn it down, you're burning what? Your own stuff. Do not grow weary, do not quit, and you must win ultimately. This is how significant it is. If it's in your stuff and the stuff that God is telling you to control, you either have to beat it or die trying. Literally. I'm not being freaky about that. You either have to beat that thing in your lifetime or die trying. Those are your options. 
Because that ground that that thing exists on, that spiritual thing inside of you, that thing, that, that habit, that temptation, that idea that you bought it to, that ground that that exists on belonged first to God. He created it, and then it was given over into the enemy, and then now he is asking you to be steward of it, and you're not controlling it, which is a problem. It's a real problem. You've got to pitch yourself to the task of following Jesus. It says, take up your cross daily. That's being willing even to die. Deny yourself. That means getting control of what's in you and subjecting it to God and follow him. That's what it means to be a Christian. And so if you have areas inside yourself that you know are not honoring God and you're not doing anything about it, you're just sort of setting them aside. Just keep setting them aside, setting them aside. I'll get around to it, right? That's too much for me to handle. That is you saying to God, God, I cannot be what you have made me to be. I cannot do what you have empowered me to do. One of you is a liar. And I submit to you, if God is a liar, there is no salvation. And if you, you are a liar, you don't have salvation. Your relationship with God is to submit all things that he has submitted to you unto him. That's what Jesus' whole ministry was about. It's what he came to earth for. was to make it possible for human beings to subject themselves to God in a dependent relationship. By faith, through God's grace, not because you earned it. I'm not talking about works righteousness. If you're not a follower of Lord Jesus Christ, then you're and you're pretending to be, then you're a fool building his house upon the sand, and when the storm comes, it will fall, and mighty will be the fall of it. But if you truly are a follower of Lord Jesus Christ, then you will, build, you will dig deep and build your house upon the rock. And how do you do that? You follow the commands of Christ. And how do you do that? When anything rears up inside you that resists Jesus, you besiege it, use the tools of the landscape, conquer it, and destroy it completely. Not just its military ability, but completely destroy it until it is absolutely eradicated. That's the warfare that we are called to inside ourselves and inside the tents and auspices of us. Then on the outer edge, the faraway enemies, those that can kind of affect us, it could be a, a person in your life, a, a friend, a family member, whatever, they can affect us. You offer terms of peace. I know people that will complain about their significant other, but you know the last time they talked to them about Jesus? Months, years decades sometimes and they're my wife is so bad my husband is so bad my friends are so bad is so and so and they're not bringing up jesus at all because they've not set the siege because they just want to keep pushing it you're out there i'm in here i've got this thing i'm dealing with me let me deal with me you go deal with you right but that's not how it works far away enemies you offer terms of peace and then if set, accepted, that person becomes subjugated to the same king that you are subjugated to. And you wipe out their military capabilities because now if they love Jesus and they come against you and say foul language, or they come against you in temptation, like leading you to do something that you shouldn't do, or they come against you physically, you can say, whoa, whoa, didn't you say you're a follower of Jesus? Is this what Jesus would want you to do? And if they are indeed a follower of Jesus, they're going to go, oh, you know what? <laughs> this is not what Jesus would want me to do. And they're going to stop. And if they're not a follower of Jesus, they were just pretending, then you besiege them and you go back to square one, sharing the gospel, leading them to Jesus, and hopefully they become subjugated. In the meantime, we don't wipe them out, but we eliminate their military capabilities. Don't you understand that when you talk to somebody about Jesus and they say, I don't want to hear it at all, at that point in time, I'm going to say this very simply, at the point in time when they say they don't want to hear about Jesus at all, you can pretty much dismiss anything they say or do after that point in time. Because they're not a follower of Jesus. They're not part of the kingdom. So they come against you with harsh words. You can go, yeah, that's just an evil spirit, which they're subject to because they refuse to listen to Jesus. So they come with an evil spirit. They're cussing you out, and you come with Jesus. I've seen that happen. I had a lady on the phone with me cussing me out at the life station, and I brought up Jesus, and she went, ugh. And just like verbally over the phone, she went, ugh. And I'm like, are you okay? She goes, yeah, you're right. And from that moment on, the entire conversation changed because she was professing it. I don't know this woman from Adam other than the fact that she needed groceries, but she was a professing believer in Christ. In my young days as a Christian, I was dealing with a man who was doing something behind the church's back, having a Bible study, but he really wasn't a Bible study. He was letting the teenagers do things they weren't supposed to be doing. And I confronted him. I said, "You will not." I was a youth director, so you will not do this anymore. It's done. I already talked to the pastor. It's not going to happen. And we're going to tell all the parents of all of the teenagers that they're not allowed to go. 
because they were all minors going and doing things they shouldn't have been doing. And he cussed me out, upside, you know, threatening me, got up in my face, yelling at me, whatever, and, I, and, and he was going to storm off. And I said, no, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you get your butt back here right now, and we're going to work this out. And he came back, and he yelled at me some more, and we worked it out. A few weeks later, he talked to me and said, you know what it was? And I said, what? So you know what it was? It was when you said, if I am a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I needed to do something. How could I say no at that point? Don't you understand that when you bring the gospel in and they accept you with, accept or deny, either way, you take away their military capabilities against you. They cannot undermine you. They cannot undercut you. They cannot hurt you internally. If they are a follower of Lord Jesus Christ and they come like that and you say, well, what about Jesus? And they say, I don't care about Jesus. I come to bother you. I come to cause you a problem. At that point, you can shut them down. They can't touch you. Or they come and they say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, but you're wrong. Well, you darn well better listen and they might be coming for your benefit. The bottom line is, it's different on the outside than it is on the inside, but it is warfare determined to eliminate the military capabilities. I cannot let the enemy, my enemies, the teachings of the Antichrist, my failed ideas, lead me away from Jesus. The only question is, are you willing to find peace by superior lumberjacking? That is to say, will you cut down the trees that are necessary? Will you spend time in your Bible? Will you spend time in prayer? Will you spend time in worship? Will you witness and share the gospel? That's the spiritual discipline of witnessing or evangelism. Will you pray? Will you do the things that you're supposed to do in order to besiege and isolate and shut down the ideas inside yourself or the things that are outside yourself that are striking into you on a daily basis? And if you won't do the work, I'm here to say you are subject to another master. You're saying, well, I, I'm too busy to read my Bible. I got too much going on. I read my Bible. It doesn't seem like I'm getting anything out of it. What, I'm not going to pray for that person because they hurt me. What, we can go on and on and on with the excuses, but the bottom line, you are, that's not Jesus' warfare. Jesus' warfare is you do what he told you to do. You dig deep and build your house upon the rock. And when the storm comes, they can blow and they can rain, but the one thing they cannot do is touch your tents your auspices, because yours are protected by God. That's our memory verses for the week. But I know that he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. But if you invite the evil one to come and live with you inside your tents or auspices, or when he comes up on your borders, if you go, well, I'm just going to try to ignore him and pretend he's not there, you're not doing it the way that Jesus called for you to do it. Doing it by some other standard. I don't know if it's one you invented, one that the Antichrist invented, one that you misunderstood or whatever. But the bottom line is, this warfare is designed to eliminate the military capabilities of our enemy. And notice, it will succeed every time. And I can say that and I'll close on this thought. Because if you realize that this warfare must be conducted, even if necessary, unto your death, I assume that you'll stop watching TV sometime before you die. I assume that you'll stop eating too much or stop watching things you shouldn't watch or listening to people who are telling you to do things you shouldn't do, worshiping false gods, pursuing money. I assume that all of the idolatry that creeps into our lives will be cut out before we actually die. If we are followers of Jesus, that's certainly going to be true. But even let's assume for a minute you go, besiege the enemy, and die in the process. What happens in the very next second? You are completely removed from the ability for the enemy to have any militaristic capabilities against you because you will be in heaven with God where there literally is no more temptation, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more trouble. The question is, are you willing to conduct warfare the way God has shown us to do it? That's the question. I submit to you when I look at it, if, as a non-Christian, as a human when I look at it, which I'm not a non-Christian, but as a human when I look at it, I look at it, man, this sounds like work. And that is exactly probably the way we should see it. That's why when Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, be diligent. 
That's why when Jesus said, there will be those who stand before me and cry out, Lord, Lord, we healed in your name, we prophesied in your name, and Jesus says, get away from me, I never knew you. Because they were busy dealing with out there and never got busy dealing with in here. There are two kinds of warfare. One, you fight inside your auspices and it is designed to eradicate anything there that will lead you astray from the Lord. And the other is out here and we fight it to eliminate the military capabilities of the enemy against us. I'm asking you to join me in that fight today. So stop putting your Bible up on Sunday afternoon and, and get it out on Sunday evening and Monday morning and Monday night and Tuesday morning and Tuesday night. Because sometime or other, something's going to come against your borders, and when it does, you need to be ready to besiege it. Stop praying only at meals or sometimes forgetting, and not even that. Pray. Stop worshiping only on Sunday morning and sometimes not even that. Worship. Stop serving only when someone asks you, hey, can you help me with this? And develop a servant's heart so you look around and serve out of discipline. Figure out what, how you can be helped. And I can go on, but you get the idea. These things that Jesus gave us to do, they are what we use in the landscape to construct our siege engines that will break down the walls and allow us to eradicate the enemy out of our life. And I want to do it. I want to be victorious in it. And I want you to do it with me. And regardless of what I want, this is how he laid it out for us. And I ask the praise team to come forward at this time and lead us in a closing hymn. But if you're here today and you would say, hey, I realize that, that, that there are things in me and I'm just letting them exist and I'm not willing to do the work, then you commit yourself and repent. You may have to publicly say, hey, this is me. I'm doing this. And then there is great strength in that. Or you might just inside just say, hey, this is me. Lord, I see this and this and this. I name them today. And I pit myself to siege them. Tear their walls down. And destroy them. Out from me. Or say, there's these things come against me on the outside. And I know there's this that I have to do. I should be witnessing. I should be sharing. I have a family member that's out there that's dragging me down. And I haven't talked to them about Jesus in months. If you have a family that's dragging you down, you should be talking to them about Jesus every day. Every day. Because you've got them sieged. And if not, they're just going to squirt out the edges and do all the things that they want to do. But you only have them sieged if you bring up Jesus. Every opportunity, let's say. And you commit yourself to follow Jesus the way Jesus has called us to follow him, not by some fashion of our own design. That's what I'm asking you to do. So I'm asking for me, and I'm committing to it. And I've been beat to snot this week since I started this sermon on Wednesday morning. To not be here and not preach. I've told you before that on Sunday morning, if I was driving to church, I felt like I can't do it. This was one of those. Jerry asked me to kick him this morning, what's wrong? Are you okay? And I couldn't say. We have got to fight like this. This is what God has given us to do. And I've, and I've been fighting like this and learning more about how to do it this week. So I've committed myself already. I'm asking you to join me. And you know what? If you don't believe I'm doing it and you want to do it on your own, this, it doesn't matter. You and Jesus, this is how it's done. This is how it's done. Whether I get it right or not, you've got to get it right. Because it's what ends their military capability against you. And until then, you'll always be believers. We, are see we besiege the enemy, not the other way around. You think you've been running and he's right behind you and he's going to catch you sometime? You've got it all wrong. You should be looking right at him, surrounding him with the skills and the powers, with your belt of truth, with your righteousness breastplate, with your salvation helmet, with your sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, with your shield of faith, which quenches anything he might throw at you. And he cannot break the siege because you will still be found standing firm in the day of evil. This is what we're called to. I ask you to respond however you feel led. Would you stand with me and sing this song? And then this is our final it's our closing hand, but also our opportunity to respond to the Lord. So let's worship him one last time with these words.
this next verse together. Let this be your prayer. If you're not singing, be focused on these words. 